Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Darts and Letters. I am producer Ren Vangert. We're highlighting our favorite past episodes of Darts and Letters all summer here on the New Books Network. Every week it's a new theme. This week it's activism and academia. And we're launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters here on the network starting on September 18th. So stay tuned. Today we've got something special for you. This is the first of a two-part series from the show that came before Darts and Letters. That show was a documentary series called Cited. And this episode kicks off a story that takes us back to Mexico a few decades ago. When genetically modified corn was found in the highlands of Mexico, indigenous campesino groups took to the streets to protect their cultural heritage, setting off a 20-year legal saga. Today, host Gordon Caddick will take you through part one of Cited's series on genetically modified maize. I'll pass the mic over to him. The big problem of the consequences is that they, we don't know what they are. It's the vast um, palette of options for bad results to come out. I'm Gordon Caddick, and this is Cited. It's June 3rd, 1992. The leaders of the world have gathered here in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. They chat amongst each other and slowly shuffle into their seats. It's the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, otherwise known as the Earth Summit. UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali opens the first plenary. As our first order of business, I wish to inv- invite the conference to observe two minutes of silence on behalf of the Earth. Two minutes of silence for this purpose will also begin to be observed all at this very moment all over the world. Rio was a watershed moment in environmental history. There was a real appetite for change. 
government seemed poised to address climate change, deforestation, and biodiversity loss. Distinguished delegates have said that this is an historical moment. However, it will only be so if the Rio conference, the culmination of long deliberations, also marks a new beginning. And by this, I mean a new point of departure. Of course, Rio didn't solve all of our environmental problems, but it did define how we understand them. It's no exaggeration to say that Rio shaped mainstream environmentalism for a generation. Because it's where our policy experts said, here are the best ideas we got. And those ideas, they're basically what we're still working with, what we're still fighting over. Ideas like sustainable development. This is the notion that our economy can and should be developed in a way that's sustainable with our environment. Rio common but differentiated responsibility. That's the notion that all countries share a burden to fight climate change, but the richer ones should do more. Rio, the polluter pays principle. That's a principle that now serves as philosophical justification for things like carbon pricing. Rio. But one idea was a little different. It was an idea born out of uncertainty. Because while the policy experts agreed on a lot, they also said, there's still a lot that we just don't know. We are in a situation where we have to take action in the face of uncertainty. This is because we do not fully understand how ecosystems function, because we have sometimes to work to a very long time scale, and because cause and effect are often separated in space. It will therefore be important to ensure the emerging opinions among, among scholars and experts received full attention in decision-making processes. Secretary General Boutros Ghali is revealing an unsatisfying truth about science. We sometimes look to scientists for certainty, for definitive answers. But that's not what they give us. What they give us is their best approximation of what they know. And with our planet and how it behaves, they're never quite sure. But how do you make policy when there's scientific uncertainty? At Rio, they said you should use the precautionary principle. It's sort of a legal and regulatory philosophy. And the idea goes something like this. If you have a reasonable expectation that some action could be potentially harmful, but you're not actually sure, well, you should proceed with caution, perhaps not at all. Let me use an example. Say you've got a pesticide. There's some scientific evidence that it might be causing birth defects, but the scientific jury's still out. There's no definitive consensus. Well, if the birth defects look bad, maybe you shouldn't use the pesticide. That's the precautionary principle. Sounds pretty intuitive, right? Better safe than sorry. But this is actually a departure from the norm because the precautionary principle flips the burden of proof. Historically, scientists were asked to prove something is harmful. But with the precautionary principle, 
industry has to prove that their action is safe. If you accept this fully, the conclusion is pretty radical. We can't risk our environment for the sake of our economy. But look, the precautionary principle and everything else they agreed to in 1992, these were just high-minded ideas. The people at Rio hoped that we take those ideas and actually do something with them. Let me end with these few simple words. Never will so much depend on what you do or do not do for yourselves, for others, for your children and grandchildren, for the planet, for life in all its interdependent forms. So almost 30 years later, whatever happened to the precautionary principle? And what does it look like when you take it out of the world of abstract philosophical principles and you bring it into the real world? Over the next two weeks, we'll be exploring just that. We'll be telling you the story of genetically modified corn in Mexico. It's a story of unproven scientific concerns but because of the precautionary principle, those concerns take on a new meaning. And in the process, they shake Mexican politics. The story comes from cited producer Polly Legere and freelance producer James Frederick. I'm following two men through the forest on narrow little footpaths. We're deep in the Sierra Juarez mountains of Mexico's Oaxaca state. For these last 20 minutes of hiking, they just keep saying, we're close, we're close. These two men want to show me something. One of them is Aldo Gonzalez. He's a farmer and activist for indigenous and campesino rights. He's tall, over six feet, and has a long black ponytail and thick, rough farming hands. Aldo towers over his friend, Margarito Hernández Sebastián, a farmer in this little town called Santa Gertrudis. Margarito is short and nimble, and is kind of hard to keep up with as he skims his way over these forest paths in a pair of leather sandals known as huaraches. The goats are calling. That means we're close. Margarito has brought me to see his farm. And when I walk out of the trees, I understand why it was worth the 40-minute hike. This is unlike any farm I've ever seen. For one, it's on a hill, like a 60-degree mountain, like too steep to ski down. And Margarito has everything here. A very eager pig on a 10-meter leash comes up to greet us. One huge, beautiful turkey and a brood of chickens waddle around. Margarito says he grows just about everything on only a few acres of farmland, all of which is on this steep hillside surrounded by conifers. This is the traditional Mesoamerican farm known as a milpa. Beans, peas, squash, tomatoes, onions and lettuce, they all grow together here. Most of this produce is for him and his family to eat. Some of it is saved for his animals. 
and sometimes he'll sell extra at a town market 30 minutes away. And then the rest is shared in the community. But one thing you'll find on this farm, and every farm around here, is corn. Corn is everywhere. Margarito points at one field. This is the Chico variety of corn, he tells me. Then he points up to a patch on the hillside. It's about two miles away to another field where he grows a completely different variety of corn, which he calls marzo. Margarito and all the farmers in the area are very specific about the type of corn they plant. And so were their ancestors. He explains that some strains grow best in hot, wet coastal climates, while others flourish up in the mountains higher than 2,000 meters. The creation of corn started sometime between seven and 10,000 years ago, in a place we now call Mexico. It began with a tall grass called Teozintle. Through selective farming over thousands of years, that grass turned into dozens of varieties of corn, or in Spanish, maíz. Today in Mexico, there are over 59 distinct varieties of corn, each finely tuned by generations of Mexican corn farmers. You'll also find corn in just about every meal. And not just tortillas. Tostadas, tlayudas, sopes, tlacoyos, huaraches, pozole. By one estimate, there are 600 different preparations of corn in Mexican cuisine. It's the centerpiece of the diet here. But it's not just that, Aldo tells me later, as we drive through the Oaxacan mountains. Aldo says maize is the foundation of the cultural identity of all indigenous people in Mesoamerica, an area covering most of Mexico and parts of Central America. He says corn is the main source of physical nourishment, but also the main source of spiritual nourishment. Take the Popol Vuh the book of history and cosmology of the Mayans. It explains the origin of man this way. Out of the ground grew the first stalks of corn, one yellow and one white. Then the creators of the universe made it into corn dough and shaped it into the arms and legs of the first men. Corn became their flesh. Or the Nahuatl people, the ethnic group of the Aztecs, they call the corn plant tlaoli, which means our sustenance, and that which generates movement. Corn is central to every civilization in Mesoamerica, the Aztecs, the Zapotecs, the Totonacs, and it has been for thousands of years. Maize, Aldo says, is what has allowed indigenous people in Mesoamerica to become what they are today. But about 20 years ago, something showed up in Aldo's town that shouldn't have been there. Aldo worried that this unwanted intruder might destroy his beloved corn. I don't mean spoil a harvest. I mean fundamentally alter its very nature, the very genetic makeup of the corn. If he's right, it could wipe out the work of generations of indigenous farmers. Cited producer Paulo Legere picks up from there. The story starts with two scientists who have nothing to do with corn. 
They're academics studying mushrooms. And the relationships between mushrooms and ants and mushrooms and plants. This is David Quist. In 2000, he was a grad student at UC Berkeley studying ecology, fungi mostly. His thesis supervisor had set up some labs in the hills of Oaxaca, including in one small town. La Trinidad. It's about 40 kilometers north of where I was with Aldo and Margarito and all that corn. It was primarily predominated by pine forests, dotted with cleared lands that had maize and beans growing on them. The milpas. The hills around here are so rugged and steep that instead of the sprawling soccer pitches you'd see almost anywhere else in Mexico, here everyone plays basketball. The slope is just too steep to build a pitch. It was great for me because I'm 181 and most uh, of the residents there are about 150 to 160 uh, centimeters tall. David's about 5'9". The people he's playing with are closer to 5 nothing. I was like the Shaquille O'Neal of uh, basketball tournaments to, uh, up there. Yeah, I, I never felt so tall in my life. But David wasn't just shooting hoops and studying mushrooms. David and his supervisor helped train community members on lab techniques. Students from the nearby agricultural school, old ladies, maize farmers, anyone who wanted to learn. And eventually... It became clear to them... This is Ignacio Chapella, David's supervisor at Berkeley. It became clear to them that they wanted to have the technical capacity for the detection of uh, transgenic DNA within plants that they were familiar with. Uh, mostly corn. Basically, the locals wanted to be able to prove that their corn was free of genetically modified genes. And not because they thought that there would be any in there. Mexico had actually placed a moratorium on planting GMO corn. So they were sure that their crops would be totally GM-free. And that meant they had a marketing opportunity. This was the late 1990s, and genetically modified food was pretty new. It was growing increasingly popular in the United States, but globally there was a lot of skepticism, especially in Europe, where there was an active anti-GMO movement. GMOs were new. A lot of people just didn't trust them. So this created a unique opportunity for these indigenous maize farmers. If the farmers could prove that their corn was GMO-free, they might be able to market it to Europeans. But in order to put GMO-free on a label, they needed to actually prove it, which is where David comes in. He says, yeah, I can help with that. I can teach you this test. It's a pretty easy way to prove that your corn is free of modified genes. I mean, where better place than rural Mexico are we going to find a transgenic uh, negative maize sample? We can use this test called PCR for polymerase chain reaction. The PCR test is pretty simple. It's a way of finding something that you can't quite see. Like, say you want to know if there's a needle in a haystack. There's no way that you can just look at the haystack and see the needle. But imagine if needles were like DNA. Imagine if they could actually replicate. Well, then you could add a needle, and then those needles would make more needles. That's basically what this test does. And then you're literally seeing the thing you're looking for. Let me give you another analogy. Sorry to mix metaphors here, but I think this will help explain things. Imagine that you're at a concert and that each segment of transgenic DNA is like the flame from a lighter. No transgenics, no lighters, just an audience vibing to the music, 
hands in their pockets. Now imagine that a few dozen people start waving their lighters around. You'd see faint pinpricks of light in the audience, but not too many. That's kind of what it would look like if there's only a faint trace of transgenic DNA. Now imagine that this is the encore of a U2 concert. Everyone's out there with their Zippos and the whole crowd lights up. That's what it's like when you have a lot of transgenic DNA in the PCR test. Basically, what happened was there was some DNA in your sample, you added more, and suddenly it's everywhere. If it wasn't there in the first place, it wouldn't have replicated like this. So David lines up his samples. He has one from canned corn in the US, which he knows is genetically modified, and then a bunch of local samples. From various places, their uncles, plots, uh, neighbors. And then one of them came back with a sample from Deconza. The Deconza is a food store. You can find one in almost every tiny town in Mexico. There are 27,000 of them across the country. They provide cheap food staples to the area, including corn. So it's the night before David's going to give this workshop on PCR to folks in Latinidad, and he decides to run a test trial. He's got his transgenic corn from the U.S., the seeds from the Deconza, and the kernels from local plots, which should basically be the furthest thing you can get from mass-produced transgenic American corn. First step, the canned all-American corn. Transgenic uh, positive from U.S., yep, there's the transgenic DNA lighting up. As expected, the finale of a U2 concert. Then a seed from a local plot. Then a Mexican uh, Oaxacan maize sample, no transgenic DNA, looks good. Another one looks good. Then he gets another sample, and something weird happens. There seemed to be a faint band, a faint signal of this transgenic DNA. Like a small group of people flicking their bicks. And then there's another sample, positive transgenic DNA, really bright, like bright is my control, positive control. It's giving him a reading that says there is as much transgenic material in this local Mexican sample as there was in the genetically modified corn from the States. So he's going back through his notes like... Which one is that? That was the one from the government store, from the, the store of these seeds coming in the communities. And that was just a oh shit moment for me. David's found, or at least he's pretty sure he's found, transgenes where there shouldn't be transgenes. GM corn isn't supposed to be growing in Mexico at all, let alone in the southern highlands of Oaxaca, where maize had been cultivated for millennia. This potential for this kind of, whether it was intentional or not, this transgenic contamination of the entire Mexican landscape. So he did the first thing he could think of. He called his supervisor back at Berkeley. But this is 2000. There's no internet, and there's only one phone in town, in this little store. There's a, a, a woman sitting there at this glass counter with all these stacks of products, uh, personal sanitary products, bath soaps, apples, uh, oranges, you name it. And she's the keeper of this green push-button phone. The way it worked is that, you know, when you would call, there was a, a loudspeaker that was right there at the office. And so every time you heard the loudspeaker come on, you know, there's this kind of, you know, testing the loudspeaker. And then everyone would stop and listen and, and see. And it would be, you know, 
Cecilia Martinez tienes una llamada por teléfono and then uh, you'd hear somebody running down the street, you know, going to get their phone call. So David goes into the little store with the piles of nail polish and pads and fruit on the counter and leaves a message for Ignacio on his home number. And then he just has to go home and wait until the phone lady lets him and the rest of the town know that he has a phone call. And then he hears it. David runs up the hill to the store, zigzagging through the cobblestone streets. This isn't about a thousand meters in elevation, so it's not super easy to breathe there. There I'm going, running down the path, thinking, what am I going to tell Ignacio here now that we've uh, had this result suggesting that transgenes had already made their way into Mexico? I think it was six in the morning. And uh, and it was David. It was David. Um, a little bit worried, a little bit uh, curious, um, saying, "This is what I'm finding. This is what I found last night." You know, we never discussed what we what we were going to do if we actually found trans genes here. And I remember really stalling the conversation by asking technical questions. Are you sure that you cleaned? All the materials that you were using, did you maybe contaminate it with uh, one of your positives? Maybe you your negative controls are coming out positive. Ignacio is like, are you sure it wasn't a lab error? Saying that out loud on the phone in this little store, the highlands of Mexico, where it really hit upon me that we had a we had a story on our hands that uh, could have real significance. And uh, that's when he said, grab some samples, get back to Berkeley. We've got work to do. Look, you probably don't want to hear another GMO story. It, it really is a tired debate. But that's not exactly what this story is about. At least, it's not about GMO foods. There is a pretty strong scientific consensus there. Most scientists think that GMOs are no more dangerous than other foods. That's the scientific question. But the political question... That's far from settled. All foods, one way or another, are GM foods. The question is, where should the genetic modification happen? Sometimes it happens in a lab. Other times it happens on a farm, like through millennia of indigenous agricultural practices. That is what's at stake in this story. If David is right that there's genetically modified corn here in Oaxaca, it would be explosive. So back at Berkeley, Ignacio and David rerun the experiment to check their figures. We reran the samples. We ran them in different labs with completely new materials and new instruments so that we made sure that all these positives were positives. They had two questions. Was there actually genetically modified corn growing where it shouldn't? Okay, the transgenes are there. Yes. Again, they found some presence of genetically modified maize in the samples from Oaxaca. Now, the second question, what happens to them? Do they uh, flow into wild relatives? When they cross-pollinate, do they have an impact on the genetic diversity? Do some of them survive better? The offspring survive better? Do some of the offspring survive, not survive? Their second question is a lot more worrying. Okay, it's here, but what does it mean? What impact might the GM corn have on indigenous maize and the overall biodiversity of the region? They just don't know. 
The big problem of the consequences is that we don't know what they are. It's a vast palette of options for bad results to come out. David and Ignacio are worried that the GM corn is wandering into the indigenous maize. It's not simply cross-pollinating, but it's actually entering into the DNA of the Oaxacan maize and fundamentally changing it. It's creating a kind of hybrid corn. And over time, this could have huge consequences for biodiversity. Because maybe this new hybrid corn would have a kind of fitness advantage. So over generations and generations of breeding, it might actually take over the Oaxacan landscape. If this were possible, it would threaten thousands of years of indigenous tradition. It wasn't until then that we started thinking about how are we going to publish this and uh, what are we going to do after? GM corn is big business. And at the time, these multinational agribusiness companies were hoping to slowly make their way into the Mexican corn market. But if David and Ignacio's paper was right, that GM corn threatened to wipe out indigenous maize, this would put a stop to everything. So this wasn't just any old academic paper that would simply collect dust on a library shelf. There were billions of dollars on the line here. After the break, David and Ignacio submit their paper. I'm Gordon Caddick, and you're listening to Cited. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. David and Ignacio submitted to Nature, one of the biggest scientific journals in the world. And in 2001, after going back and forth for over a year, Nature finally published their two-and-a-half-page paper, Transgenic DNA Integrassed into Traditional Maize Land Races in Oaxaca, Mexico. I personally didn't expect the, the level of international Uh, attention that it received once we published our research in December of 2001. The press went wild. Le Monde, El País, BBC, etc. It blew up. Estados Unidos confirma maíz. Bad seeds fight gluing with genetically modified corn in Mexico. GM corn. The scientific denounce l'existence de maïs contaminés. Genetic contamination taints corn in Mexico. Transgenes gone wild and all these kinds of things, which certainly um, got people's attention. There was an active ban on planting GM corn in Mexico, but there was no ban on buying it from the U.S. So the best explanation for how transgenic corn wound up in the birthplace of maize was NAFTA. When NAFTA was ratified in 1994, it was a huge deal for Mexico. This less developed country was setting up free trade with two major first world economies. So NAFTA marked a new era. 
But under NAFTA, it was now cheaper to import U.S. corn than to grow it. So by 2000, 6 million tons of U.S. corn was coming into Mexico, and a third of it was genetically modified. Some of it went into the Deconza food stores, those government food shops all over the country that David Quist had taken samples from. It wasn't labeled GM corn. They wouldn't have known. The working theory is that this was all an honest mistake. Maybe the farmers accidentally confused the local corn meant for planting with the NAFTA corn meant for eating. So that's why genetically modified NAFTA corn ended up in the milpas that David and Ignacio were studying. So the very trade agreement that the Mexican government had hailed as a victory might have been leading to GM corn being supplied to indigenous farmers. David and Ignacio's paper put the Mexican government in a very awkward situation. So Ignacio is in Mexico City, trying to explain this whole thing to Mexican officials. This guy showed up and he said, I'm here in representation of the chairman of the Biosafety Commission. Uh, he would like to talk to you. The chairman's name was Fernando Ortiz Monasterio. He's in charge of regulating GMOs in Mexico. And this research could be very embarrassing for his department. Monasterio felt that GM crops could do a lot of good and prove Mexico was a modern economy. And he was actually hoping to lift the ban on them. They took me to this empty building and in an office that was not really an office, but felt more like a, you know, a, a, a makeshift uh, interrogation place. Ignacio says that they were the only three people in the building. They uh, dismissed the uh, one lady that was uh, looking after coffee. And that as soon as they got there, the chairman started yelling at him. Telling me that I was doing something terrible, that uh, I was about to get myself into a huge amount of trouble and so on and so forth. For about an hour he did that uh, with this burly bodyguard. Uh, this data, these results that you're reporting are not true. This is all a lie. And then the tone starts to shift. <laughs> he said, I have arranged for you, for, for you and uh, the other four greatest scientists of plant science in the world <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to meet in, uh, in a resort in Baja, California, um, all by yourselves and uh, repeat all these experiments, whatever you need to do, and you will submit another paper to Nature that says that, and he had the results, he wanted me to say some stupid uh, result that basically said that was not true. It was the opposite of what we wanted to publish. Ignacio says he was told the other four scientists were from Monsanto and DuPont, two of the largest manufacturers of genetically modified corn. And Ignacio is like, no way. I am very happy to help anyone, including in industry. I can give them all the information we have. And they can work from that, but I'm not going to um, rewrite this paper to uh, come to the opposite conclusion to what we see. And after that moment, um, this guy uh, stood up and left, went out, and he, he told the bodyguard, he said, show him the offices. The burly guy takes Ignacio on a walk around this whole floor of empty offices. 
In some places, I remember the carpet being rolled up from flooding on, and we were on the 13th floor. It was pretty high, and uh, the windows were, you know, floor to ceiling, and this is a part of Mexico when many people um, are disappeared, and especially at that, at that time, it was basically the place where people go dump bodies. Of course I was worried, of course I was scared, uh, but I was thinking, okay, maybe all this is it. And so what, you know, I don't know. I kept thinking, so how, how is this going to work? Are they going to push me out of the window? Is that really possible? Like, I was just really thinking that way. Ignacio is thinking that this is it. He's going to get killed over corn. But then he says the chairman switched tones again. He's like, please, friend, we'll drive you home. We insist. They pulled up in a black suburban, which is this massive SUV, you know, that gangsters use. <laughs> it's, it's like a cartoon. And then throughout the trip... They were telling me, uh, talking to me about my daughter and talking to me about, you know, it's again like in a movie, a bad, cheap movie, gangster kind of style. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's the only time in my life when I've had that experience. Ignacio says that he got the message. If he was going to do this work, he should be prepared for backlash. We couldn't find Fernando Ortiz Monasterio. But he did talk about this meeting in Caitlin Shatterley's book, Modified. Artie's Monasterio remembers the meeting quite differently. He calls it, quote, professional but not friendly. He says there was no swearing or threatening, and the office was just under construction. And yes, he did suggest Ignacio redo the study, and that among the people he should work with were industry people, including Monsanto. But most importantly, he said that the position of the Mexican government was that Ignacio and David's research was, quote, a cherry bomb for biosafety, that it could hurt both the biotech industry and NAFTA, and that could have major economic implications. He goes on to call Ignacio courageous for the way he, quote, fought for his study like Quixote and the windmills. Which, when you think about it, is a pretty sick burn. Because in the story, Don Quixote charges towards what he thinks are giants, but he runs into windmills. Monasterio is saying that David and Ignacio are going to battle with their own imaginations. Nick Kaplinsky kind of agrees. My name is uh, Nick Kaplinsky. I'm a professor of biology at Swarthmore College. I teach plant biology, molecular genetics, and genomics. Back then, Nick was a grad student studying corn. He was planting these big fields of it at Berkeley, not all that far from David and Ignacio's lab. And Nick thinks it's a little weird that their paper had been published in Nature. After all, it's one of the most prestigious science journals in the world. Because neither of them are really trained molecular biologists. Nick is, though. He's in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology. Ignacio and David are in environmental science, the building just opposite Nick's department. So Nick writes into Nature, which is standard enough for academic journals. But Nick says there was no way that David and Ignacio had the data to back up their claims. What Quist and Chappella were claiming were that these transgenes were found at high rates scattered throughout the genomes of local varieties of corn. And 
if that had been true, this would have been a, a totally groundbreaking discovery. Nick says the paper was full of bad science. First of all, there are uh, missing data points. Uh, there are data points that they're comparing that clearly come from different experiments. Basically, he says they're comparing apples to oranges. Or corn to carrots. Fundamentally, they used a very, very sensitive and error-prone technique incorrectly. And then they misinterpreted the data that it generated. First of all, Nick's not convinced that they even found evidence of GM corn in Oaxaca. But what he's even more unconvinced of is the argument that David and Ignacio make that genetically modified genes somehow behave differently in the wild. Their results didn't provide any evidence for this uh, and certainly uh, provided very clear documentation that uh, their PCR results were artifacts and that they'd grossly misinterpreted uh, those, those results. Nick thought David and Ignacio were just looking at windmills, not giants. Here's why. Remember that PCR test, you know, the U2 concert? Well, that technique is a very error-prone technique, if you're not careful. It can take a small trace of something and then blow it up out of proportion. So maybe what you're seeing, it's not a result of what's in the sample, it's a result of something you did during the test. Okay, so we're back at the U2 finale. Bono's got his shades on. The edge is just about to shred. I don't know the names of the other members of U2, but all those lights in the air? Maybe it's GM corn from Oaxaca, or maybe it's something else that your PCR test introduced. What if you're not actually looking at lighters at all? Maybe it's the exit light from the stadium or somebody on their cell phone or someone with glow sticks or the red tip of someone lighting up a joint. Nick says the technique that David and Ignacio used could not distinguish between lighters and phones, joints, glow sticks, exit light. Their technique misinterpreted all of those sources of light as being people waving their lighters in the air. So as being evidence of genetically modified corn. It's not that there weren't lighters there, it's just you couldn't prove that all of that light was from lighters. But basically, this was the fight that was happening in the pages of nature. Did David and Ignacio interpret their results correctly or not? But this fight wasn't just about a PCR test and how to interpret it. Because here's the thing, the people who wrote angrily to nature, they didn't just say the test was wrong. They called Ignacio and David anti-science, anti-GMO crusaders. And those on David and Ignacio's side, they accused the other of being corporate shills. And all of this, most everyone in this story, they were at Berkeley. It was really two departments fighting against each other, and they had been for a while. So this fight, it was personal. The fight in nature fanned the flames of a fire that had already been burning for a few years like some kind of horrible tire fire at the town dump. These two departments were fighting over the role of corporate funding at the university. A few years before all of this, Berkeley had signed a $25 million contract with a major biotech company called Novartis. 
and this caused a huge divide. The Plant and Microbial Biology Department, that's the department that Nick was in, gained a ton of new funding. But the other departments, including the Environmental Science Department, where Ignacio worked, they were dead set against this. And I was one uh, very clear and very vocal opponent of that proposition. He said it had massive ramifications for academic freedom. And David was part of a campus group called Students for Responsible Research. Nick Kaplinsky was too. I stayed involved for a little bit until, and, and again, I, I dug up some old emails until uh, he, he called uh, me and uh, the members of my department corporate wars, at which point I stopped attending those meetings. Nick showed me those emails. The term was used. Once the Novartis deal was signed, students started taking direct action. A group calling themselves Green Streets started to destroy the corn plots growing on the Berkeley campus. Including Nick's. It was uh, trampled and, and chopped down. So that cost me about two years of, of research time. It significantly set back uh, my graduate career. The students left notes behind saying that they did it because they were against the Novartis funding and GMOs as a whole. So this science occurred in, in an atmosphere uh, where I'd say people weren't having constructive conversations with each other. That's the atmosphere on Berkeley leading up to the publication in Nature. Two departments on the same campus pitted against each other over GMOs. So when David and Ignacio published their article in Nature, it was like dousing that tire fire with gasoline. And the fire, well, it came for Ignacio. After the piece was published, he didn't get tenure. Usually the chancellor simply approves what the faculty after this process uh, has said. In this case, the chancellor came out contradicting all the process and single-handedly said no. Said no, uh, this guy should not receive uh, the next round of uh, employment and tenure, promotion to tenure. And so they put me uh, basically on a terminal contract that was going to run out at the end of, uh, of the year. It made the news. There was even a rally. Supporters said that he was being punished for research that could be bad for biotech, now a major funder at the university. What I feel very strongly about uh, is that uh, this came from, um, you know, softly spoken, spoken words behind closed doors to simply get rid of me from the campus. It's impossible for us to know if that's exactly what happened. The tenure process is confidential. At the time, Berkeley said no one person could, quote, hijack the process. But one minute Ignacio was on track for tenure, and the next he wasn't. And the same thing happened to his paper. Nature ends up issuing a disavowal of it, not a retraction, a disavowal. It's the first time in 133 years of publishing that this has ever happened. The editors wrote, quote, The evidence available is not sufficient to justify the publication of the original paper. But since the original authors, Ignacio and David, stood by their results, Nature said it wanted the readers to judge the science for themselves. By this point, David had moved into GMO research full-time, but he says that it was just too hard to get funding. In two instances, I remember getting a call from the USDA 
and from a very nice uh, uh, worker there at the office and saying, can I talk to you off the record? I just wanted you to save your time and say, despite what uh, what is good and probably very important research, politically, there is no way in hell you're going to get funding from our agency. And it really was a signal to me that there was not the space to ask these kinds of questions in the United States. He ended up in Europe, working on biotech regulation in Norway, which is where he lives now. I'm sure you're wondering, who was right, David Ignacio or Nick and the molecular biologists? Well, one 2002 study refuted David Ignacio, but it was corporate funded. And then there were dozens of other follow-up studies. Some found transgenes, others didn't. And there's been a debate around all of them. Who's funding what? At the end of the day, there's been some support for David Ignacio's first claim that there was transgenes in the Mexican maize, but really no one has backed up the idea that this GM corn behaves differently in the wild and somehow could threaten the biodiversity of the region. And part of this is that it's not a very popular area of research. There's not really funding for it, not when David and Ignacio first made the discovery, and not even now. It's still seen as a politically toxic issue, and some scientists see what happened to David and Ignacio as a cautionary tale. So we don't have a definitive answer for you. Based on what is out there, here's the state of the science. Molecular biologists we talked to said it was highly unlikely that GMOs could bully out local varieties. And even then, the genetically modified corn wouldn't necessarily overthrow Oaxacan maize. It would still need the right conditions to thrive, and a milpa just isn't one of them. So maybe David and Ignacio were charging against windmills. But they also told us that with biological systems, you never know. One scientist said biology is full of surprises. It's a dynamic system. It all depends on the crop, the local conditions, how people plant, and how everything interacts with everything else. You'd have to do a lot more research, and even then, you'd never know for sure what might happen or what could happen in the future, which is kind of the point that David and Ignacio were making. Sometimes scientific experts just don't give us the definitive answers we want. So we have to operate under conditions of uncertainty. But that uncertainty brings risks. Because what if David and Ignacio were right? Try to put yourself in the shoes of an indigenous farmer. Remember Margarito from the very beginning? His maize is fine-tuned just for the hills of Oaxaca. His maize has been cultivated over generations. His parents, his parents' parents, thousands of years of work. It's his heritage, not just his agricultural heritage, but his spiritual and cultural heritage. And then this new corn comes around, and he thinks, what could this do to my corn? Next week, we return to the hills of Oaxaca. Indigenous farmers react to David and Ignacio's findings with alarm. And so they fight to defend their maize. And that fight puts them up against their own government, against NAFTA, and against the most powerful multinationals in the world. Mexico, didn't, in that moment, didn't have any regulations about transgenics. 
It's part two of the fight over corn, when farmers and activists face off with the Mexican government and the world's largest agribusiness companies. I didn't think the lawsuit would win, although of course I wanted it to. If just one judge decides they can't find a reason to block transgenic corn, I'm not sure we could file another lawsuit. It would have been decided for life. If the worst did happen, a flood of transgenic corn being planted here, we'd have to leave. This episode was produced by Paulie Legere and James Frederick. Our research assistant was James Radigan, and the episode was edited by A.C. Rowe and me, Gordon Caddick. Our theme song and music are by our composer, Mike Barber. Fact-checking by Aurora Tejeda. Dakota Coop is our graphic designer, Cited's production manager is David Tobias, and our executive producers are Sam Fenn and me, Gordon Caddick. Thank you also to Ana de Ita Rubio, Santiago Munoz, and Daniel Moreno from the May Zaho Tortilla Shop. Thanks also to Sylvia Ribeiro from the ETC Group, Topher Ruth at the Berkeley Advanced Media Studio for his recording assistance. Thanks for further fact-checking support from Martine Shep and Katrina Highback of the University of Toronto. Thanks also to Professor Dave Ng and Dr. Sophie Common for teaching us a thing or two about plant genetics. Fernando Ortiz Monasterio's account of his meeting with Ignacio Chapella comes from an interview with Caitlin Shetterly in her book, Modified. This episode was funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. We got a grant to discuss ideas in liberal environmental theory. James Radigan was our research assistant on the project, with further research advising from Professor Jessica Dempsey at the University of British Columbia and Professor Rosemary Collard from Simon Fraser University. Cited is produced out of the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Transgenic DNA intergressed into Chadrish... Transgenic DNA intergressed... Transgenic DNA intergressed into Chadrish... What a title! Transgenic DNA intergressed into t- transgenic DNA intergressed into two okay. Transgenic DNA intergressed into t- holy shit. Okay. Okay, I've got to run out of battery before I can say this.